love one another, forgive, judge not, fear not. It's all such great advice with beautiful outcomes, but none of those principles is a one-step process. So let's talk specifics, the messy step-by-step. Welcome to, but how though, in a bunch of other spiritual conundrums. Welcome back to But How Though and a bunch of other spiritual conundrums. We have now reached the third of our three-part modesty series, and I am loving this discussion. I've received quite a few messages and comments on this topic, and the insights are incredible. The questions are so helpful. The discussion is so important. Thank you. Thank you so much for your thoughts and insights and interaction. I love hearing from you please keep reaching out. I received just a couple comments this last week that I wanted to address and I want to do it carefully because I don't mean this to criticize any commenters or thoughts that that occur to us as we discuss these topics. These are very difficult and sensitive topics in a lot of ways. But I did receive a couple of statements like this, but there's no way blank, insert article of clothing here, could be modest. Under no circumstances could somebody wear that and be modest. Now, I understand the thought process behind it. It's an interesting thought because in our minds, there might be certain things that if we wore them or bought them or said them or did them, they would definitely be immodest. So we can't imagine a different motivation is possible even in another human being. We want to assign a universal motivation for a single thing. That's not possible though. I know personally people who have worn a string bikini on a beach with no intention other than to experience something for themselves or with their partner and it had nothing to do with being seen. That's not immodest. And I know people who have worn string bikinis in the hope that others would find them attractive. If it's about being seen, that's where the immodesty comes in. The bikini, though, didn't dictate either feeling. The bikini was used in both scenarios, but both scenarios were not showing immodesty. The heart shows it. I know people who have purchased boats or other big toys in order to have fun and create memories with others and for themselves. And I know others who have purchased the same things and then expressed to me the hope that people would see those things and think they were cool. The boat and the things don't dictate either feeling. The heart dictates the feeling. And I also know people who have stayed in a, quote, modest home, even if it wasn't working for them anymore. And they really would have loved something bigger, or with a different layout, but they wouldn't change homes because they didn't want people to think they were the type of person who wanted a bigger, better house. They were acting out of a desire to be seen in a certain way. I also know people who have left large homes for even larger homes and have received a lot of judgment for that. But the reason they left was because they believed that that home would serve them better and allow them to invite more people in or provide a safe environment and great memories for themselves and others. It's not the homes or the size of the homes that determine the modesty of those actions in those two different scenarios. Their individual intentions determine the modesty. It's really important to understand that though a certain thing, 
a bikini, a boat, a house, a story, a swear word, whatever. It's really important to understand that that thing could be used in an immodest way, but it doesn't mean that it's always going to be used in an immodest way because it's not the thing that is immodest when we talk about this. And we can't judge for other people what is modest. We can't because we don't have access to their hearts to examine those motivations. We only have access to our own hearts to examine our motivations. So the judgment in it, not only is it ineffective, we're unqualified. We don't have all the information we would need to make an accurate judgment on those scenarios. This week, our focus is going to be on behavior. And I love talking about modesty and behavior Because this is where we really get to the heart of modesty as a principle. Our behavior is what encapsulates modesty's fuller meaning. Not the cheaper, narrower versions of modesty we've sort of twisted it into, but into its broader, more comprehensive meaning. Modesty is the state of the heart that embodies humility. And if we employ modesty in our hearts, it's a superpower unlike anything else. A couple years ago, I was thinking about Jesus and how amazing his self-control was and how crazy unexpected his behavior was. Jesus lived among the Jews in Israel for just a short 33-ish years, and only the last few years of his life were spent in active ministry. But in that time, his teachings rocked the Jewish nation in so many ways. His teachings were radical, and because very few people recognized or understood the son of God part of his identity, his teachings were sometimes seen as quite blasphemous, which is the crime he was eventually tried for at the end of his life. Now, I'm a Christian, and as a Christian, I believe in Jesus's divinity. But setting all that aside, Jesus's reactions to and his interactions with his critics were astounding, astounding. Dude did not clap back. He knew more about their scripture than they did. He knew more about their natures than they did. He knew more about their world, their politics, and their bodies than they did. He was Jehovah, their God of the Old Testament. And they accused him of the craziest, dumbest things. They tried to trip him up with their questions. They tried to trip him up with their posturing and their pretended authority. And he could have shut that crap down immediately. But that wasn't his purpose in coming. He wasn't there to show the idiots they were idiots. He wasn't there to gather worshipers and admirers. He didn't spend time proving who he was because he understood who he was. He was modest. Modesty is the ultimate use of power. It's understanding Team Universe's plan for everyone's growth and success so well that ego has no place. He didn't clap back because clapping back would have been for him to defend himself or prove his value. And he didn't come here for him. There was nothing in it for him. He only came for us, even for the idiots. So he came, gave, and let himself be accused and murdered without ever proving to his accusers how wrong they were. Modesty allowed him to show up and give, give, give. Nothing to prove, nothing to hide. This is such an important principle. So when I was thinking about this two years ago, I asked Jesus, how? How did you operate that way with people in your face accusing you of the most ridiculous things? How did you ignore that 
and stick to your purpose? Team Universe has been answering that question for me for the last couple of years. (laughs) Turns out I had to unlearn a couple of things. When I was growing up, the word humility was used a lot to describe Jesus and anyone else who was like really noble, but not loud about it. Humility was taught as a quality we should all possess because it was noble and it was favorable, but it wasn't generally taught in a way that seemed possible. Like it sounded like an attitude you could achieve maybe, but if you knew you had humility or modesty, then you didn't really have it. So then how could you know you had it? You couldn't. You had to just be it. But since if you thought you had humility, that meant you probably didn't have humility. This was a quality that could only be measured by others. So then in my mind, it became another one of those things that we do for show. It's an external measure of how I was doing according to how others viewed me or how others viewed humility, right? Like to be humble, you didn't brag, you didn't show off, you didn't one up or put others down or raise yourself up to others, especially in conversation. You just went about your day, not bringing attention to your strengths and accomplishments because that was humble behavior and people like humility. So humility was a quality we all wanted because it made us more likable, more acceptable, more compelling as a person to be around. This use of humility achieves the opposite of humility. We behave in those ways so that outwardly we appear to be more likable and appealing human beings, but we're doing it for others' approval. We want to be humble because people like to be around humble people and we want them to want to be around us, but it's still all about how others are perceiving us. It's still about others accepting and approving of us and liking us. And so I had to ask, but how though? How do you achieve humility without making it one of those things that is for other people's approval? Well, if you've listened to all the episodes of this podcast, (laughs) you'll know my desire to be accepted and viewed favorably by others at all times became quite an illness for me. And I have had to spend a crap ton of time and a crap ton of money undoing it. Well, two years ago, I started with a therapist and she very quickly honed in on my obsession with how others viewed me. Through some of my very first sessions, we realized I'd been spending basically every waking minute of my life trying to be both surprising and impressive. Those were my goals. I wanted everyone to be pleasantly surprised and impressed by me at all times and with every interaction. She understood what I didn't, and that was that I didn't see myself or love myself, which was in fact causing me pain and confusion. So I was trying to feel seen and loved through others, hoping that that would alleviate or eradicate my pain and confusion. But it wasn't working because being seen in love needs to come from me and not others. So my addiction to outside validation wasn't solving the inner problem of not loving or valuing myself. Instead, it was trapping me in this vicious cycle of insecurity and fragile self-concept, basically. So she gave me homework. Okay. She told me I should try to do something. (laughs) (laughs) to surprise and impress myself. I was like, what? What? Like, what does that even mean? Is that even possible? I have access to my own thoughts. I'm the one thinking them. So how am I going to surprise myself? And if no one else even knows about what I choose to do, how will I know if it's impressive? Like, how am I going to be impressed with myself It actually hurt thinking about doing something just for myself because the rules were I had to do something that I really wanted to do, but not tell anyone else about it. And 
And I couldn't do it because someone else wanted me to do it. It had to really just be about me. I, I quickly realized that honestly, the most surprising and impressive thing I could do for myself was if I did something, anything, and not tell anyone about it. <laughs> it took an embarrassing amount of time to even come up with something. And then it took an embarrassing amount of effort not to talk about it, even before I did it, let alone after I did the thing, because I talk about everything. Everything is a story to me. I realized through this exercise that one of the reasons everything is a story to me is because how much I love people to know about and approve of the things I do. But the problem was that focus was weakening me as a person. I wasn't seeing myself. I was only ever seeing myself through the lens of how someone else might be seeing me. So I couldn't unleash my true powerful self on the world. I was too busy trying to figure out what the world might want from me first to know which part to unleash. So then I'm only ever giving pieces. So I tried the assignment, okay? I took some baby steps at first and it really is sad (laughs) how hard it was. Because the habit of external validation for everything was so deeply ingrained. I'd formed habits of using my behaviors, using my experiences, using my stories to try to elevate myself. And it didn't make me feel more secure or more loved. It kept my relationship with myself precarious, flimsy, fragile. My relationship with myself balanced on the point of the knife of outside views and opinions about me, which I tried very hard to control, yet I could never control. (laughs) Hence my exhaustion and fear and insecurity and finding myself in the therapist's office. Self-elevation breeds insecurity. It breeds it. So modesty and humility aren't just pretty ideas about how to be a more likable person. They're ingredients. They are actual steps in the manual for building self-love. And self-love and understanding is how we tap into our actual power. It's how we access the vulnerability, the authenticity, and the courage we need to show up and give with nothing to prove and nothing to hide, just like Jesus did. So let's talk about how Jesus taught these principles. Up to this point, The people of Israel had been operating under a strict adherence to the law of Moses equals righteousness policy. The law of Moses was a set of outwardly measurable standards. They weren't really indicative of what a person thought or felt inside their hearts, but it did give people a set of boxes you could check to maybe see how you were doing obedience wise. Okay. Jesus came and basically said, we're not using that law anymore. It's fulfilled. We're measuring hearts now. And there is no outward measure of a heart. It's an individual practice and an individual pursuit. In Matthew 5 and 6, he gives the Sermon on the Mount and he sets the Beatitudes in front of these people as a replacement measurement. No more law of Moses. Measure yourself with these principles and values. And if you read through them, (laughs) almost every single one of them, have an element of modesty and humility. It's incredible. I think it's also interesting to note here that on a different occasion, when asked about the greatest commandment, Jesus said, love God with all your might, mind and strength 
and said the second is like unto it. And then he named a commandment that was not part of the original commandments the people of Israel were familiar with. It was completely different. The one Jesus gave had a lot more to do with this higher law of conduct, these higher principles of love. He said, love thy neighbor as thyself, meaning esteem others as equal to yourself, but you got to esteem both. You've got to love both others and yourself in order to fulfill that commandment. Now, it is very hard to love others and love yourself when you are in a constant competition in your mind, whether it be to gain the upper hand or whether it be to win the prize of someone else's approval. That ain't love. But looking at these Beatitudes, they are gorgeous in how if we really work on these qualities, if we really tried to cultivate these attitudes, the result is love sown and grown inside of our souls. Love, peace, acceptance, not the cheap imitations of these things as achieved by surprising and impressing people sometimes. Actual peace, actual acceptance, the kind of peace and acceptance that would allow you to face mocking false accusations or would allow you to be misunderstood and not clap back. It's the kind of self-love that allows you to understand who you are so well that you will show up at any given moment with what you have and give it without stressing about what you don't have yet or without stressing about how what you have is going to be received by the others when you lay it at their feet. These Beatitudes are quite radical when you think about the outside measures they take away from us. These would take away the need to count the steps of the Sabbath. These would take away the need to measure the length of somebody's skirt on their body and decide if they are sexually pure. These Beatitudes take away all the outside measures, but give us actual control over ourselves. In Matthew 6, in verses 22 and 23, Jesus talks about this in terms of our focus. And in terms of what it does when we shift our focus, he says, the light of the body is the eye. If therefore thine eye be single, thy whole body shall be filled with light. But if thine eye be evil, thy whole body shall be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in thee be darkness, how great is that darkness? I have felt that darkness. And it's not what you'd think, okay? If your eye is not single to the kingdom of team universe and your body is filled with darkness, it's not always the darkness of a rotten, evil person doing evil deeds every day and wishing evil things upon the good folks. That darkness that you feel is a lot more subtle. It's confusion. It's pain. It's misunderstanding of others and misunderstanding of self. That's where immodesty in behavior leads. It's not about sexual sin or any specific kind of sin, really. Your eye isn't focused on your true purpose and Team Universe's purpose. So you disconnect from them, from others, and from yourself. The darkness that comes from that is a false sense of self as measured by others. So it creates this insatiable desire to be seen and approved of which we think will show us we're loved and valued and hence we'll feel loved and valued, but it does the exact opposite. The darkness that comes into our body when we are not focusing on our true purpose or team universe's kingdom 
causes us to rely on others to point out our worthiness, to contribute, or to exist. That kind of darkness is dangerous because it holds us back, but not overtly. No one comes at us in our faces declaring these things. Our eye subtly shifts its focus from true purpose and true self-understanding to this external validation, and then we're incrementally held back in our potential, little by little, until eventually we're holding back more than we're giving. And I think while we're talking about modesty, we gotta talk judgment. Since modesty is a state of the heart and inherently relies on individual intention, we can never know whether someone else is being modest. We can never know if someone else is righteous. In John 7, 24, it's one of my favorite verses about judgment. I know the Bible is full of verses about judgment. But here's one of the really, really good ones because I think it nails it. John 7, 24. Judge not according to appearance, but judge a righteous judgment. We could maybe twist that in our minds and be like, okay, well, I'm not going to judge them like the book by its cover. Like I'm not going to judge them by what they're wearing or what they look like, but their behavior is this. So I know that they're this. And we think that that might be a righteous judgment, (laughs) right? How do we know what a righteous judgment is? Well, it's very simple. Ask the question, who's the only person we can know the intentions of completely? Ourselves. So who's the only person we could judge righteously? Who's the only person we are actually qualified to judge? Ourselves. Self-evaluation. Self-examination. No more outward measures. We just don't know their motivations. We can only look at our own hearts. If we seek first the kingdom of team universe and keep our eyes single, focused on what we can do with what we have, where we are, all things are added to us from there. That's the kingdom. All contributions are distributed. All benefits are shared. With modesty, if we focus on the whole, we benefit from the whole. But if we focus on a piece or try to elevate one piece above the rest of the whole, we miss out on so much. And then we get filled with the darkness and confusion of misunderstood value. With true modesty, we don't got to clap back because our purpose is to build, not to prove. That's all I got for this week. Please join me again next week. I'm Rachel Larson. And I have personal experience with how difficult some of these things are, especially modesty as a form of self-love. But Team Universe has come through every single time I have asked. I have seen and I know how committed they are to helping us grow and become happier, fuller, more successful beings. It starts with opening our hearts and asking sometimes really hard questions like... But how though?